Hey, Cornwall Church, so good to have you with us at Cornwall at Home. This is our new normal for now, and uh, so glad that you're with us. want to again thank Ron and Sarah and the team, the worship team, for bringing us incredible worship every single week. And I want to continue to uh, encourage you not to just watch and listen, but to engage and to sing along and to, uh, and to worship our God. Hey, if you were with us last week, you know this is the second week of our summer series, and we're going to jump right in. We're studying Moses this summer, and as I mentioned before, there's way more that we're going to skip over than we're actually going to hit. Uh, and if you want to hear more about it than we're just doing on the weekend services, last week I uh, mentioned three books that I would recommend. The Bible is the first one. The second one was a book by Chuck Swindoll uh, called Moses. And the third one, James Montgomery Boyce uh, called Moses as well. And uh, those are available, well, online and, and uh, Amazon, your booksellers. Doesn't matter. If you want to uh, go deeper, those are the books I would recommend. Little quick uh, update from last week. We had uh, Moses being born, but before that, the Hebrew people are in Egypt. The way that happened was Joseph and his family, his dad, his 11 brothers, his two sons, they come to Egypt. They all move to the land of Goshen, not the Everson Goshen Road, for those of you who are in Whatcom County, the land of Goshen, which is in the Nile Delta. And they're supposed to stay there. There's about 70 to 75 of them and their herds. They're supposed to stay there about a year or two until the famine in Canaan goes away. Well, Joseph and his brothers die. No one leaves. Why would they? There's great pasture land there. Fast forward a few hundred years. Those original 70 to 75 people have now grown into not just a nomadic tribe. There's close to 2 million people. A brand new pharaoh, brand new king comes into power, a new dynasty. And he doesn't know the history. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know why they're even there. And he's intimidated and threatened by them. So he begins to treat them harshly. And here's where we begin to see 3,500 years ago, the beginning of anti-Semitic behavior. He begins to oppress them. He begins to enslave them. He begins to kill their children. He uh, in insists that the baby boys be killed uh, at or um, right before birth. There were uh, two heroes in the story, Shifra and Pua. They said, we're not going to do that. So he says, well, then throw them in the Nile. In the midst of that, there's a young family who are from the tribe of Levi. The father, the husband, his name is Amram. His wife is Jochebed. They have an eight-year-old daughter, probably about eight years old. Her name is Miriam, and they have a toddler son. His name is Aaron. Then they give birth to another little boy. Of course, they're supposed to kill him. They hide him, keep him secret for three months. And when they realize we can't hide him any longer, Jochebed makes a little ark, as it were, a little basket. She places him in the Nile River. He's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's saved. This brings a little bit, probably, of tension in the house of Pharaoh, because Pharaoh had instructed that baby boys be thrown into the Nile, and here his daughter comes home saying, look what I found. Can we keep him? So anyway, we'll get back to that later. Thus, Moses is born. She calls him Moses because she drew him out of the water. You can read more about that, at, probably at the little asterisk on your Bible. Now Moses is our guy that we're studying. Bigger than life, not just bigger than life in Sunday school lessons, and not just bigger than life in, in screens and movies and, and you know, theatrical events, bigger than life throughout the pages of scriptures. He is the dominant character of the Old Testament. He's quoted throughout the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, they're all quoting Moses. He's the lawgiver, he's the liberator, he's the, the, the deliverer, I mean, just so much. And even in his greatness, what we discovered last week is that all of Moses points to one even greater. And I wish we had time to go into this in depth, but in Hebrews chapter 3, we read these words. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Look at this. Moses was, a, was faithful as a servant 
in all God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. You see the contrast here. Moses is an incredible man. God used him incredibly, but he is, was a servant in the house of God. Jesus, on the contrast, is not a servant. He's a son. He's the heir. He's the owner. And he is, not was, he is over the house of God. What we will discover again and again and again, that the principles of Moses point to the person of Jesus. We saw it last week. We'll see it again today. In fact, we're going to see one today that I think is absolutely phenomenal right at the end. So don't leave early or you're going to miss this amazing picture of how the principles of Moses point to the person of Jesus. That Moses and his life is an imperfect foreshadowing of the perfect fulfillment that will happen in Christ 1,500 years later. All right, so today we're gonna to be in Exodus chapter two and three. I hope that maybe you read that in advance uh, this week, uh, preparing for this. I, I know I didn't ask you to, but maybe some of you did. So much we're gonna skip over, so much I wanna cover. So many little rabbit trails, biblically, historically, with Egyptian history that I want to go down and I just can't. So we're going to try to, try to get through this. Um, my prayer and our, our elders meet on Friday afternoons on a Zoom prayer. And we pray for you every single week, every Friday. And one of our prayers this week for you is that throughout our time together over these next few minutes, well, more than a few, but our time together today, that the Holy Spirit would nudge you with exactly what you need to hear. What application, what thought, what seed, what, what principle, what challenge, what encouragement do you need to hear? All right, so let's jump into it. Exodus chapter two, this is kind of where we left off last week. Verse 10, it says, when the child, that's, that's Moses, when the child grew older, she, this is Pharaoh's daughter, she took him to Pharaoh's, uh, she, uh, that's, sorry, that's Miriam, uh, probably, or Jochebed, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, say this word with me, hat. Hat, okay. Say Shep, like a shepherd or German shepherd, Shep. And then say suit, like a swimming suit or suit. Hat, Shep, suit. All right. Hat, Shep, suit was the fifth pharaoh in the 18th dynasty in the new kingdom in Egypt. We covered a lot of that last week. What's interesting about Hat, Shep, suit is that she was the only the second female pharaoh in Egypt. Many people believe this is who this is talking about and that she was between Thutmose II and Thutmose III and that she was unable to have children. Thutmose III was actually a stepchild and when she finds Moses, she feels like this is a gift from the gods, the god of the river Nile, that this is God's gift to her as her son. All right, so a little bit of that. See, those are the kind of, I don't have time to go down those rabbit trails. So she has this. And then now here's Moses and he's brought back to her. Verse 11 says this. One day after Moses had grown up. Now if you're like me, you say, wait a second. Seems like we've missed a portion of his life here. That here he is, he's in the water, he grows up to where he's weaned, probably three or four years old, and now all of a sudden one day after Moses had grown up. Between Exodus chapter two, verse 10 and verse 11, there's a gap of about 40 years. And we're not gonna cover that extensively. And Moses, who wrote this, doesn't even mention it. And I, I think there's some reason for that. I may get into that uh, early on next week. So there's this 40-year gap, and I want us to look at some of that and, and fill in some of the blanks with that. Some of that is found in the book of Acts when Stephen tells this story. And where I want us to start is the, the uh, multiple uh, 
matriculations of Moses. Multiple matriculations. It's not every day that I get to use a five-syllable word, matriculations. Now, for some of you saying, I don't even know what that means. For those of you who don't know what it means to matriculate, you don't know what matriculation means, I have three words for you, enroll in school. Enroll in school. That's not a command, that's a definition. That's what it means to matriculate, is to enroll in school. And I want us to look at some of the schools that Moses enrolled in. There were, there were several of them, and God was using them to prepare him. So when he's brought out of the water, he's taken back to this, this Hebrew woman, his mother, Jochebed, to nurse him and to raise him. At that point, he begins to be schooled in things of Hebrew history, of his identity, of, of who they are as a people. He grows up in his family home with his biological parents and his biological sister and brother, and he's no doubt taught the language that the Hebrews speak. This would come in handy if later he hypothetically were to lead two million Hebrew-speaking people. It would be good for him to know the language. So he learns this from the earliest age. Not only that, he learns his identity, that he is from the tribe of Levi that his, his, his family are people of faith. And what's most important is that he begins to learn the oral traditions that they've held on to. He begins to hear the story of the God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the story of Joseph, how they got to Egypt, all those things. Because later when he would write the Pentateuch, much of Genesis was that oral tradition that he is writing down. And all of that is taught to him at an early age. And then later, when he does write the Pentateuch, when he writes uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he writes this incredible thing called the Shema. It's this prayer that, that every Jewish person would pray every morning and every night. It's the part that Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He would pin those words. And right after that, he would write this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. What if, what if this instruction was not from the Moses manual on parenthood? What if he is just telling other people to do what his parents did for him? What if Amram and Jochebed talked with Moses day and night when they walked along, when they sat down, when they got up, when they laid down, that he was just continually learning about the things of being the Hebrews, the chosen people of God. Little side note here, parents, you are the primary influencers, the primary spiritual influencers in your children's lives. We wanna come alongside you. We have an incredible children's ministry with Explorers League, but you are the primary spiritual influencers. We have an incredible middle school ministry with The Edge and The Encounter with High School, but you are the primary spiritual influencer in your children's life. And this was the first school that Moses went to. It was in the home with his mother and his father hearing about the spiritual foundation in his formative years. Now, after he gets weaned, He's gone over to Pharaoh's daughter, and we find another piece of this story in Acts, Acts chapter 7, where it says this, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Little Egyptian history. There was a town in the, in the, uh, in the Nile Delta called Heliopolis. And in Heliopolis, there was a place called the Temple of the Sun. It was an educational um, 
area. It was where the best education could be had in the region and in Egypt. So now that, now that Moses is a part of Pharaoh's household, no doubt he would have been sent to the best education possible. And it was here that he would learn all the basics of math, you know, arithmetic, and uh, same thing, reading, writing, all of those things, and, and some advanced levels of geometry and trigonometry, maybe calculus. It's here where he would learn about the arts and about music. It's here where he would learn later on about science, about medicine, about astronomy. It's here where he would probably learn about the, the art of war. It's here where he would probably learn the code of Hammurabi about law because, and we'll talk about that with the Ten Commandments in four or five weeks or so, four or five weeks. It's here that he would learn all of these things, that he would be educated in all these things. And there's an extra biblical source out of Josephus that said during these early years, Moses was an actual warrior in the military for Egypt and had some conquests. So when it says he was powerful in speech and in actions, he had done these things. Now he grew up knowing the Hebrew language. He probably was also trained in Akkadian, which was the, the common language of trade, and also in hieroglyphics, which would have been like the most intense language you can even imagine. When we were in Egypt just uh, four months ago, I took a picture of some hieroglyphics. These, and you've no doubt seen different things with hieroglyphics. Our guide, Max, he gave us a rudimentary uh, understanding of the alphabet, of the American alphabet in hieroglyphics, so we could spell our names. But hieroglyphics has more than a thousand different characters, and sometimes they have sounds, and sometimes they have meanings, and sometimes they have symbols, and sometimes how you put them together. It, it can take an entire lifetime to learn hieroglyphics, and I'm sure that Moses would have been schooled in that as well. In addition to all that, he probably learned about architecture, engineering, how to measure and, and portion off land. I mean, after all, this is Egypt, all right? You know, this is like they built the pyramids. They knew how to do this stuff. He would have been schooled in all of this. He would have been probably better educated than the vast majority of the rest of the country. And so now, as we've skipped through, he's had all this education, he's had these experiences, he's powerful in speech, he's an orator, he seems to be this, this commanding presence as he speaks with maybe some uh, influence of, of, of great magnitude, that he would have this charismatic personality possibility, this history of being victorious, a powerful leader, and all of that. And 40 years later, then we pick up with his life and it says this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their, their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Remember, Moses grew up knowing that he was of this family, of Jochebed, of Amram, of the tribe of Levi, of the Hebrew people. He goes out to these people and he says, these are my people. This is my blood. All right, sometimes I quote lyrics. I'll take some of you back to 18 years ago, J-Lo. She, she sings, don't be fooled by the rocks that I got, all right? You know, um, now I forgot it, man. Uh, I am, I am Jenny from the block. Jenny from the block. So I had a little, now I've got a lot. And no matter where I go, I never forgot where I came from. In essence, Moses is quoting Jennifer Lopez, saying, listen, I may have become a prince of Egypt, but I do not forget where I came from. And he goes back and he sees this injustice. He sees this oppression. He sees this wrong that's being done to his people. And he decides to do something about it. 
And this is where we begin to see him going into another school. And this is what I call the school of hard knocks. Because what he's going to learn is that there are consequences when you do the right thing in the wrong way. When your intention is right, but the impact is horrible. So when he sees how horribly his people are treated, and he sees this one being beaten, he snaps. That's the, that's the final straw. And he kills this Egyptian. And he tries to hide it. And as pretty much every politician has ever discovered, what you've done in your past has a way to come back out somewhere along the way. And so people began to talk, and in addition to that, he lost his moral authority with his own people. And it began to leak out. And then we see in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Could it be? Because, I mean, Moses is like one of the top leaders of the country, but Pharaoh tries to kill him. Could it be that this was a long-seated hatred that Pharaoh had for Moses? That Moses was supposed to be killed when he was born? And it was against his order that he's lived, and maybe for years he's looked for an excuse to kill Moses. And now he has one. And he tries to kill Moses. And Moses, it says, he fled from Pharaoh and went down to live in Midian. If you remember the map from last week, Midian was across the desert over um, farther uh, to, the, to the east, where he sat down by a well. Now, that all sounds good. Like, here he is. He's gone, he's gone to Midian. He's sitting down there. Stephen, again, tells this story in Acts chapter 7. And he says this. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, again, it feels like, okay, we missed a whole chapter of his life. Oh, yeah, we did. Verse 30 says this. After 40 years had passed. So now we have just fast-forwarded another 40 years. Let me fill in a few of those blanks. He goes to Midian, and he sits down at a well. And there's this guy named Ruel. Ruel is the, the priest of Midian. He's also known as Jethro. He has seven daughters. No comment there. He has seven daughters, and they come out to water their flocks at this well, and they're being harassed by some of the others. Moses won't stand for it. And this is such a cool picture, because it's a microcosm of what he's going to do on a massive scale. He sees these seven ladies who are vulnerable, who are oppressed, who are being um, harassed, and he steps in as their deliverer, and he serves them. He, he, he sends these guys off. It's a picture of what he's going to do for, for all of the, the, the Hebrew people. So he, he not only uh, you know, comes to their rescue, he waters their flocks for them. They go back home. Jethro says, why are you guys home so early? They said, there's this guy down at the well, man, he helped us out. <laughs> Jethro, father of seven daughters, says, you didn't bring him home? Come on, we need some husbands around here. A little bit of my own interpretation there, but I think that's what he's getting at. Long story short, Moses marries Zipporah. Now, if you've got a guy named Jethro, I think her name really is Daisy May, but we'll call her Zipporah. And he has two sons. One of the sons' name is Gershom, which this is one of those things. It's its own sermon. Gershom's story, his name is our story. He names him Gershom because he says, now I am an alien in a foreign land. That's our story. This home, this world is not our home. We're aliens here of a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's another sermon for another day. So here he is. Now, he's out there, and he's in the desert, in the Median desert, with... Um, with his wife now and with, with these kids. And it's in this time 
that he goes into the school of Desert University. And there's some very practical things for these next 40 years as he lives in the wilderness, as he lives in the desert. He begins to understand how do you survive out here in the wilderness? This could come in very handy somewhere down the line if hypothetically he were to lead a bunch of people that would spend some time in a wilderness. He would learn how to navigate by the stars so he wouldn't get lost. He would know how to read the the weather and the seasons. He would know how to get water. He would know all of those things. But there'd be other lessons that he would learn as well. He would learn about solitude and silence, some deep lessons. He would learn about prayer, perseverance. He would learn humility. And there in those years, he would have a depth of character that God is bringing about in his life. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, we read this. During that long period, those 40 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears their cry. He's concerned for them. He hears this. Now, when we get to that point, we're basically at the end of chapter two. And what we've just covered is about 80 years of Moses' life. Here's where we kind of fall into a little bit of a trap. We see the highlight reel of Moses' life. We watch the movie. We hear the stories, and there are all these high points. We hear all that. But for 80 years, 80 years, we don't hear a whole lot of anything. We hear about parting Red Seas and getting Ten Commandments and water out of rocks and and plagues. We don't hear about the days and the weeks and the months and the years and the decades walking around with flocks out in the desert, feeling like his world is done, his life is over, he's been forgotten. See, it's in those seasons when we think God's finished with me, that he's preparing me for something even greater. Chapter three, verse one. Now Moses, Moses, this well-educated man, Moses, this military leader, Moses, this man who speaks multiple languages, Moses, who is amazing, Moses was tending the flock. Okay, if you were here last week, you notice it doesn't say he was a shepherd because of what Joseph had said shepherds were looked down upon by Egyptians and Moses had been raised as an Egyptian. So he doesn't really say he's a shepherd. He, he's tending the flock, but it's not even his own flock. He's tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So here's this guy who is like equipped to be a leader of a nation and he's working for his father-in-law, taking care of his sheep and his flocks. And, and, uh, Jethro, the, media, the priest of Median. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There are three, I think, uh, iconic, epic moments in Moses' life that we often think about. One of them is the burning bush, one of them is the parting of the Red Sea, and the final one is the Ten Commandments deal. Those are like these three things. Notice here, none of those things happen until Moses has already lived 80 years. And now he's out on the, on the far side of the desert. He's on the far side of his years in life. 
He's on the far side of any kind of career or any hope that he would ever make any kind of difference or be significant at all. He's on the far side of everything. He's thinking it's all done. And in those moments, when he looks back at his failures, when he looks at what he threw away, when he looks at what these years that seem to be a waste, it's in that moment that God meets him. And some of you may feel like you're on the far side of the desert. You may think you've been forsaken by God. You may think you've failed too bad. You may think you're too old. You may think it doesn't matter. That's where God will meet you. And he's on the far side of the desert. As I mentioned um, a couple, weeks ago, a couple of months ago, we were in Egypt. And, and there's question about where this mountain of God is. Uh, Egyptians say it's one place. Those from Saudi Arabia say it's another. In Egypt, they believe that this is a picture of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And we climbed up to the top of that. But you see how, how desolate things are out here. He's out on the backside of the desert, and that's where he is out there all by himself. Silence, solitude, monotony, day after day after day. All right. Exodus 3, verse 2 and 3 says this. There, on the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. A couple things in here. One, he says, I will go over. It wasn't just like, here it is right here. Let me go see this. It's maybe across the ravine, across the canyon, across the valley, way over on the other side. When you're out in that desert, you can see far off. It may have been way on another mountain. And maybe he's out there on a dark desert highway with cool wind in his hair. And, and there he sees off in the distance a shimmering light. His head grew heavy and his thoughts grew dim. He had to stop for the night. Maybe he sees it and maybe he sees it day after day after day. And finally says, I've got to go figure out what that is over there. And he goes over. And sometimes we have to go over, go away from what we're doing, take a detour to have the presence of God, to meet with God. And he goes over there and he sees that the angel of the Lord is appearing to him in the flames of fire. Something about that fire. You know, there's a, I can't speak for ladies, but for guys, there's a fascination with fire that probably starts when we're about four or five years old, when we learn to strike a match, and at last we finally outgrow it. Well, we don't. I think when we get to heaven, maybe. But there's this fascination with fire. And he sees this fire, and it's a different fire. It's, it's within. It's, it's not of the bush. It's within the bush. And, and it doesn't consume the bush. There's something different about this. And there's a paradox of fire. The paradox of fire is that on one hand, it's, it's beautiful and it's attractive, but it's also very dangerous. It's like the moth attracted to the flame. It's beautiful. It draws it in, but if it gets too close, it'll destroy it. That, you know, that we have fires in our homes, in our living rooms, and, and these fires are beautiful, but we tell our kids, don't play with fire. There's this paradox there. That, that fire can, can, can be so soothing to just stare into the flames of fire can almost be healing, but fire can be destructive. And here we see God appears in these flames of fire. There's a fancy uh, kind of a theological word called a theophany. A theophany. A theophany is when there's a physical manifestation of the invisible God. This is one of those times. Physical manifestation of the invisible God. And here's God in the flame. And you see the paradox even here. Because in scripture, God is referred to as, a, as an all-consuming fire. 
that would devour and destroy. And yet in the Song of Solomon, you see this thing with, that his love is, is like the, the, the blazing fire, fire, the flame cannot be quenched. That you have this holy, raging fire of God that cannot tolerate evil. And this passionate, burning fire of God that loves and pursues for all of our lives. This paradox of fire. And he sees this. Verse four, five, four. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he'd gone over, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses, Moses. He says it twice. In, in Hebrew, uh, this is a way to repeat a name. This is a way to show deep personal love and affection. Jesus uses this. That, that time when, when he's at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and Martha's just running, 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 running. She's so frantic. And he just says to her, Martha, Martha. He says it twice. Martha, Martha, you're so dear to me. The time when Simon Peter is just, he's out of control. He's thinking crazy. And Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon. You know, Satan is, is asked to sift you. Like, I've prayed for you, Simon. I, you're near and dear to me. When Saul's on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're near and dear to me. And here God calls him twice, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am, my location, here I am. It goes on. He says, do not come any closer, stop. Now, this is the first case of social distancing. Too soon? All right, so this is the deal. God says, okay, you gotta stop, no closer, hold on there but it's not because of some virus, it's a spiritual distancing. Because now you're in the presence of the all-consuming fire of God. So you need to just stop right there. You're already in this zone that's like hazardous to your whole being. Stop, he says, no, don't come no closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He says, take those sandals off because where you're standing, it, it has nothing to do with the dirt. It has to do with the presence of the almighty God who is there. And here's Moses in front of this bush that is flaming but not consumed. And the bush starts to talk to him and calls him by name and tells him to take off his shoes. And he's just overwhelmed, he covers his face. And when you're in the presence of God, what did Isaiah say when he was in the presence of God? Woe to me, I am undone. I, I can't deal with it. There was a time when Peter got a glimpse of Jesus and he says, away from me, Lord, I, I'm a sinful man. It's an awful thing, terrible thing to be in the presence of the most holy God. And yet God says, Moses, Moses, I love you. And there you see this again, this paradox of the love of God and the awesome fear and respect. And so when he gets Moses' attention, he tells him what's going on and what he's up to. He says this, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, these are the things that I'm doing. I've heard them, I've seen them, I know, I've come down, I'm gonna rescue, I'm gonna bring them up. This is, this is all the activities of God. And I'm wondering if he's thinking, you know, Moses, you saw these things as well. 
That's why you're out here, right? Because you saw the oppression. You heard their cry. You saw the injustice. And you tried to fix it. That I appreciate. But you did it in the wrong way. This time we're going to do it in my timing, in my way, with my power. And I can imagine Moses saying, hey, great. <laughs> I mean, I tried it once. I failed miserably. Good on you. Go get them. Get them out of there. I'll be out here in the desert with the sheep. So you know where to find me if you need me. That's great. You've heard them. You've seen it. You know. You've come down. You're going to rescue them. You're going to take them up. It's all good. It's all great. And then things change. And something's different when the verbs get personal. Up to this point, it's all what God is doing, what he's about, what he's hearing, what he's seeing, what he knows, where he's going, what, what he's coming to do. But now the verb gets a little bit more personal. Verse 10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. <laughs> Which Moses got, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I was with you. Yeah, you had me at that you're going to, you know, deliver them. But now you said you were going to do that. But you're saying, I'm the one that's going to do that. I, I've tried this before. I've lost all my moral authority. They want to kill me. They don't trust me, all that. And so he asked this question in verse 10. It says, Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Oh, God could have said, well, Moses, let me tell you who you are. You are created in my image. I formed you when you were in your mother's womb. And when you were born, if you'll recall, they all thought you were a fine child, a unique child. In fact, it's recorded three times in the Bible. There was something different about you. And your life was spared in the crocodile-infested Nile River. And you were brought up with this education about spiritual things in the Hebrew tradition and all the formal education of, of Egypt and even the education of some of your mistakes and the education of living out here in the wilderness. You have spent your whole life for this. You are the man. They're going to make movies about you. They're going to say things like, holy Moses, that you're going to be on everyone's, they're going to all know who you are. Let me tell you, you've got this. That's who you are. It's not what God says. God doesn't even answer his question. He said, Moses, you're asking the wrong question. That question is completely irrelevant. Look what God says. I will be with you. See, Moses, it really doesn't have anything to do with you. I will be with you. So he follows up with another question. Okay, well, if you're not going to answer who am I, then, then who are you? you know, I mean, what if they ask me, what, who is this God? This, you know, what's his name? What, what's going on with that? And here you find that amazing verse out of verse 14 where he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am, which at first reading you think is God saying, listen, I don't have to answer that one either. I am who I am. You just don't worry about that. But as you well know, if you've been around here for any length of time, God is giving him his name, yod Hey vav Hey, this unspeakable name, Yahweh. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The I am. This verb to be, this self-existent one, the self-sustaining one, this self-sufficient one that doesn't need anyone or anything. And he says, I am with you. I am sending you and I will work through you. All right, now I'm gonna need to stop there. So much more, but I, I wanna give us kind of, again, a, a bit of a, a macro picture of what's happening. 
that God is coming to rescue these people. And there's a reason for that. Yes, they're oppressed. Yes, they've been in bondage. But it's not just what they're saved from, it's what they're saved for. And we can't miss this. This goes back to Abraham. When, when God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, you're gonna be a great nation, you're gonna have many descendants, and they will be a blessing to the whole world. Part of the reason I'm saving you is yes, you've been treated wrong, but I've got a purpose for you. In fact, he says, it's not just that macro, you know, somewhere out there purpose, it's even a purpose for you once you get out of Egypt. It's hinted, and you can read it on your own in verse 12 and verse 18. And when, when later, we'll see this in the next few weeks, when Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh, they go to Pharaoh and they have this broken record line they come back to again and again. God has said, and we always you know, say four words, let my people go, let my people go. That's only part of the statement. That's an incomplete statement. It's accurate, but it's not all of it. Nine or 10 times they go to Pharaoh and they say the same statement over again. God has said, let my people go so that, it's not just what you're being saved from, it's what you're saved for, so that they may worship me, so that they will be about my bidding, so that they will be my people. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Not just saved from, yes, saved for. Now, as I said, all of Moses is this imperfect foreshadowing that points to Jesus. And let me give you a couple of these and then we'll wrap it up. And, and this is, this is I, I just find this absolutely amazing when we, when we begin to discover these things. Let's circle back to when Moses is in God's presence. There the bush is on burning the fire from within, not, uh, not consuming this. And the, the, the sandals are off. And it's a mystery how this bush that doesn't burn up is talking to him. But there's an even greater mystery. And that greater mystery is Moses. Like Moses, God told him, stop. Like you're not approaching the, the, the danger zone. You're not approaching the fatal zone. You're in the presence of God. Stop there. And you notice when, when he covers his face and then he begins to dialogue with God, he's arguing with God. He's whining and complaining. He's excusing. You begin to wonder, why isn't Moses just evaporated right there? I mean, here he is, this unclean human being in the presence of the almighty, holy creator, and he's arguing with him. Why is it that he's even still alive? Well, if we circle back to Exodus 3, verse 2, it says this, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames. And I say, well, yeah, there's, there's angels throughout scripture. But this isn't Gabriel, and this isn't Michael, and this isn't one of the other, you know, messengers. This is the angel of the Lord. Now, I, I talked about a theophany, where there's a physical manifestation of the invisible God. There's a subcategory under theophany, and it's called a Christophany. A Christophany, I refer to it as JC in the BC, Jesus Christ before Christ. And you, you see it, like when Abraham goes out in Melchizedek, I mean, it's pretty obvious Melchizedek is Jesus. All right. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace and there's a fourth man and he looks like he is the son of God, pretty obvious who that is. There's a time where Joshua will come and there's this, the angel of the Lord standing before him. He says, are you for us or against us? He says, neither. I'm the angel of the Lord. Take off your shoes. See, Moses isn't the only one that had that happen. Here the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord is within this bush and he's the mediator. 
that the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, is mediating the very presence of God with a sinful human being. And here's a cool, follow me on this one, that what Moses is experiencing is the fulfillment of a foreshadowing that will point to a fulfillment. Let me explain. That Jesus here is mediating between Moses and God. And in just a short amount of time, Moses on many occasions will be the mediator between God and his people, the Israelites. So Moses is getting a glimpse of what his role is gonna be and what his role is gonna be as a mediator, not only between God and the, and the, the Hebrew children, but the mediator of the covenant, that that would all be fulfilled in Christ. I hope I didn't lose you on that. So he's experiencing something that he's gonna point to that will be fulfilled in Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse five, we read these words, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and he's there. That's what he's always done. That's what he does for Moses. Moses is gonna do that for the people, all pointing to Jesus again. How cool is that? Okay, oh yeah, one more. So here's Moses talking with God through the mediator, Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. They're on a mountain. Jesus is there in these fiery flames, the Shekinah, this, this outward expression of the, the inner majesty of God, the glory of God. Jesus and Moses are talking on this mountain and Jesus and Moses are talking about how he is gonna be a part of this exodus that will save the people, not only what they're you know, oppressed, save them from, but save them for, and on top of that, he's going to be using a wooden stick for part of this. This all points to Jesus. Because about 1,500 years later, and Luke records this for us, Jesus and a few of his disciples go up onto a mountain in Luke chapter 9, and it says this. As he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. This is the Shekinah glory. It's the outward expression of the inner majesty. Hebrews 1 says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. John 1 says that in him was life and that life was the light of men. So Jesus is on this mountain and he's praying and the glory of the Lord is there. But it's not just that he's having really good devotions. Someone else is there too. Two men, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And all the prophets pointed to Jesus. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Any of this sound kind of familiar? And it's not just that they're talking, having a good time. They're talking specifics. And it says this, they spoke about his departure. Come on. The Greek word here can be translated exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Is this the coolest thing ever? Jesus is on the mountain in all of his glory, talking with Moses, talking about an exodus that would be fulfilled in Egypt, that would bring people what they're, out of what they were oppressed from, but for a purpose, and he would use a wooden stick. Now, Moses and Elijah 
are on a mountain with the glory of the Lord shining around them. And they're talking to Jesus about an exodus that he would fulfill in Jerusalem. And it would bring his people, not just out of guilt, not just out of shame, not just out of death, not just out of punishment, but for a purpose to worship God and to serve his purposes. And he's not going to do it with a wooden stick, but with a wooden cross. And he's going to fulfill it all on that cross so that we could be saved not just from, but for his purposes, to do his will and to do his bidding. See, this is our story too. And Jesus continues to do that. The chances are some of you are saying, oh, that all sounds good, Bob, but like you're a pastor and who am I? You know, that's the same thing Moses said. Who am I? And what did God say? That's an irrelevant question. You see, God is able to take some dirt and make it holy ground. God is able to take an ordinary old bush and fill it with something that is supernatural. God is able to take an 80-year-old man who has a past, who's given up, who thinks his life is over, and use him for his purposes. Who am I? Wrong question. You see, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You, you may feel like this for whatever reason. You may say, that's what I feel like right now. And God says, I want to do something in and through you. Don't ask, who am I? Instead, why don't you say like Isaiah said, here am I. You use me. And let your glory shine through me. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he turns to his disciples and says, you, you are the light of the world. You're, you're a city cannot be hidden. You're like a, like a lamp. Don't put it under a bushel. And then he would say this in Matthew chapter five. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Because it's not about you. It's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what Jesus did. This is what he does. And it's what he's doing in our lives. Our response is not, who am I? Our response is, here am I because of the love of our great God.